there's a lot of people who say, oh, but I don't have a blah, blah, blah. I haven't done a blah, blah, blah. I guess it's not for me. And I just, I just want to like shake people by the collar and say like, oh, is that an immutable state of affairs? Like, <laughs> like absolutely not. Like the whole point is if, if there is some arm of credibility that you don't possess, go get it. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind-the-scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss. Show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. Today, I am so excited to catch up with the brilliant and badass Dory Clark. Dory is the kind of person that needs no introduction because she is everywhere. But if you have been living under a rock, I will give you a little bit of background as to her very impressive resume. She's an adjunct professor at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. She's the author of three amazing books, Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine. She's a former presidential campaign spokeswoman. The New York Times described her as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make change in their lives. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, and she consults and speaks for huge clients, including Google, Microsoft, and the World Bank. I met Dory years ago through a mutual friend, and it has just been amazing to watch her stay steady on this path, growing her brand and her empire. I love everything that she says. I feel like she's reading my mind sometimes and saying it much better than I could. But I'm also proud to say that she wrote one of the endorsements on the back of my book, Badass Your Brand. In this conversation, Dory shares a behind-the-scenes look at what she did to build such an impressive and far-reaching brand and reputation online and off, as well as her upcoming book, The Long Game, and what it really means to stay steady on a path to build the business and life that you want. You're going to want to hear this, so buckle up. Here we go. If you're listening to this the day it drops... Today is September 16th, and Dory's book comes out on Tuesday, and we're going to talk about it on this show. It's actually part of what I wanted to pick your brain about. It's called The Long Game. <laughs> yes, Is there yes. a subtitle? Uh, there, is, there is a subtitle. It's How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Brilliant. So I think I emailed this to you when I reached out. I've been wanting to invite you on this podcast. I have to be honest, I was like a little nervous about having you on today. <laughs> Not because you're intimidating, you're like the nicest, most generous person, but you're just so impressively accomplished and brilliant and you and you're a beast when it comes to content and <laughs> creating content the amount of content that is out there that you have been doing for a consistent amount of time is just so impressive so first of all hats off to you <laughs> you are are definitely leading the way and actually what what sparked me and I said well now I have to read out this is a sign is that a couple months ago I was talking to Steve and he's been having some really great success with his art recently and he, he got in the paper and stuff and, and we were like, 
people think this is an overnight success story, but actually Steve has been doing this very consistently for years and years. And I was like, I got to write a book called The Long Game. <laughs> and then I Googled it and there you were. And I was like, of course, Dory is writing this book. This is a sign. I have to I have to email Dory. It is time for her to come on my show. You Googled it and it was me and it was Mitch <laughs> McConnell. And you said, who would you rather have on your podcast? Oh. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and somehow I won. <laughs> and you definitely won. And you definitely should be writing this book because you have been in the long game for the longest. Tell me a little bit about uh, why now is the time. You've been playing the long game for a long time. Why is now the time to talk about the long game? And, and what do you mean by that? Well, part of what inspired me to do it is for the past now five years, I've been running this online course and community called Recognized Expert. And the basic idea is it works with you know smart, accomplished people who are looking to get their ideas out there more into the public sphere. And I, when I first started my business 15 years ago, of course, I was grappling with these questions of like, okay, what do I do? How do I get my ideas known? How can I build a business? And so I, I was fumbling my way in the dark to figure all this out. But as, as you know, you always learn a lot more by teaching and by being around people and encouraging people. And so seeing all, all of these folks in, in, who are part of the community and helping them, it's now more than 600 people, I've really been able to see longitudinal patterns in what it takes to get your ideas recognized and, and build your platform and raise your profile and all these things that are really important if you want to develop a business, certainly in professional services like we work in. And what I kept seeing and realizing, and, you know, I, I like hated to be the, the bearer of bad news, but people, you know, like my coaching clients, my private coaching clients, every two weeks, I'd talk to them on the phone and they'd be like, so what now? What next? What should I be doing? And I'm like, um, the same thing you were doing two weeks ago. <laughs> and, and it was so frustrating because they kept wanting like a new thing or a new answer. Like, what's the what's the silver bullet? And so I wanted to really write this book to be like, okay, pr Yes, you need a good strategy, but pretty much there's no silver bullet. Like here is here is how to have the strategic patience necessary to just do the thing so you can get to the other side where you want to be. I mean, I've told people like you're going to get bored a little bit. <laughs> like you should be bored because you're doing it over and over again. There is a lot of excitement in doing the same thing over and over again because you get better and better at it. But essentially, yeah, we all are chasing that shiny new thing. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, one thing that was really influential to me years ago was I, I got my start working in politics. And I would see the candidates that I worked for. I did press for Howard Dean when he ran for president. And I mean, running for president, honest to God, it's the most boring job in the world because seven times a day, you know, breakfast, coffee, lunch, tea, dinner, evening, you are in front of audiences and you are literally giving the same speech. You have your stump speech and you might shift around a few paragraphs and, you know, take out the thing about prescription drugs when you're talking to college students and take out the thing about abortion when you're talking to the churches or whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty much the same thing. And more than anything, it just takes endurance because when you go off script is when you get in trouble and you have to be the candidate that has sufficient endurance to be willing to give the same speech seven times a day seven days a week for you know literally it's about a two-year process because 
even though you've said it 2,000 times, people haven't heard it. And we have to have the pers- the perspective shift to realize like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm bored as fuck, but I, I've got to, I've got to leave it all on the field here. I am so guilty of that too. Right. And I'm, I'm actually super curious what your personal experience has been, because you are clearly a a learner, you're an academic, you are a thinker, you're a philosopher, so you are constantly growing and learning, and yet part of branding and getting your message out there is kind of the same thing as presidential candidate, right? You wanna say the same thing over and over again to really nail that brand, but you also don't want to stay in one place. How do you view that, that idea of, well, on the one hand, I need to get these really clear and really simple ideas out there by repeating them over and over again. And I am personally growing and learning and seeing things in a new perspective. So how do I not confuse my audience? Yeah, it's it's an important question. I mean, I think of it as kind of like a mixtape <laughs> because <laughs> ultimately when, when you're writing a new book, I think in some ways this is like the point of a new book um, because it's such, a, it's such a grueling and ridiculous process. Every time I do it, I'm like, oh my God, this is the last one. It's awful. You know, it's just this <laughs> awful process. But, um, but, but really what you're doing is it is a forcing function for you to do the research necessary to to get new stories and new case studies so that you can enliven things so I still get questions, you know, which is which is fine, which is good. It's still part of my oeuvre, but I still get questions when I'm doing interviews or podcasts or what have you uh, around reinvention, which was the topic of my first book. And so, you know, there's still point, key points that I make. There's stories that I tell and wrap in, but. I like to think that I continue to get better because the point is not that I am literally saying it the same way that I said it in 2013. I now have these vast stores of uh, material that I can turn to. And so I can get that much more precise and that much more granular in terms of examples or shading or nuances or or, or things like that. So I, I think it's... Essentially, if you're a political candidate, the example would just be having more modules at your disposal so that when you're asked a question, you don't get caught off guard. You have more more pieces that you can draw from. Mm. I remember the first couple times I did a podcast, it was very nerve wracking. But as you do hundreds of interviews and conversations, you almost don't have to think about some of your answers because, oh, I've got... You know, I pull from my bag of tricks. I've got a great story for that. I've got a great line for that. And that's just practice, right? And that's part of the long game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I I think sometimes sometimes people... it, it's interesting because it's I think it's simultaneously, you know, like like either self-aggrandizement or victimization where people are just, you know, take any about anything. They're just like, well, you know, some people are born that way. And like if you if you embrace that and and you are that way, whatever that way is, it's like, oh, I'm so awesome. And if you're not that way, it's like excusing yourself from the responsibility of ever trying. And both of those extremes I find really hard to deal with. <laughs> I'm like, come on. It's true. Like from the time we're a kid, we sort of show our natural predilections. And so like, okay, I'm never going to be like the best singer in the world. I mean, Mariah Carey has like what, like five, five octave range? Like, 
I don't, I don't even know how that happens. Like, I'm not going to get there no matter how much I practice. But guess what? If I was actually really serious about becoming a better singer, I guarantee you, if I spent a few years taking singing lessons, I would indeed be a better singer. So we can't absolve ourselves of responsibility. Like, when we practice, we do legitimately get better. It's funny you say that because I started taking singing lessons a couple of years ago ah. out of nowhere to just try something new. Do you and have I, five octaves now? Uh, <laughs> and I sing just like Mariah Carey. I'm just not going <laughs> to share it with anyone. It's just funny you say singing in particular because it that was exactly my experience. I was so surprised at how much better I got. <laughs> Way singing. to go. I know because singing, I, I think it, singing is an interesting one because singing is the kind that really seems like, well, you either know how to sing or you don't, right? It, there's no in between. Some people are just natural because all we look at is Mariah Carey and, um, you know, whoever else. like people Celine Dion. Great, yeah, Celine Dion, right. The best, the divas. And they practice their faces off and they have a natural and it's the it's the two parts but i'll tell you as somebody who doesn't have any sort of natural gift for singing i definitely got better <laughs> Practicing. amen sister yeah yeah and part of the reason i even did it was well first of all it threw me into the deep end of doing something that i didn't know anything about and it's been a while right you're an adult it's really easy to avoid things that you don't know anything about but oh as, yeah but as business owners, as people who are being experts and want to be more, right, you're never an expert or not, like you're just more and more expert. We are, we need to be okay being a beginner all the time, learning new things, learning new things. And I was trying to get comfortable with that kind of in a different place in my life. And I yes. found it very uncomfortable. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When it, one of the things that I talk about in, in the new book, The Long Game, is actually my version of this, which is not performing, but it was learning to write musical theater, which is something that I had never done whatsoever. And uh, five years ago, I decided to set out on a quest to learn to learn how to do that. And I gave myself uh, a 10-year project of writing a Broadway show, a show that would actually appear on Broadway. And so... I'm basically the halfway mark. And so I've met, you know, I mean, we'll see if I have a show that gets on Broadway, but I have made actually pretty good progress. I have uh, in the five years going from like literally not knowing one thing about how to do it. I applied for uh, was rejected by but then applied for again and was ultimately accepted into, you know, really one of the nation's top musical theater training programs. I completed the two-year program. I, I now have completed my first year of the advanced program and I've completed a musical. I've actually written a complete musical, which is now the thing that I'm, you know, shopping and uh, trying to get uh, theaters and producers interested in. So I have uh, I have progressed as well. When I saw you two years ago, you were still, I guess you were just in the middle of writing it. So yes. you've progressed quite a bit. Well, but also you have a lot of, um, I mean, is that, a, is that just a natural part of you? Your desire to take on these huge projects and just that consistency? Do you think it's a muscle that you've been building? Were you told as a child that you were good at this? Or, I mean, I, I feel like some of the things that I'm good at, I remember somebody telling me I was good at it. And part of it was me wanting to fulfill on that identity. Do you oh, know what I mean? that's, that's helpful <laughs> when you, when you have, have that to work with. I mean, certainly for like musical theater, that was, it was just not even on the radar. I mean, my parents were not into music. They were not into musical oh. theater. Like, you know, this was, the, you know, I, I went to this tiny school. It was so small, we didn't even have a theater program. It was just not around. I mean, you know, my, you know, mama tried hard. Uh, she, she wanted me to be cultured. 
And so okay. uh, I remember she took me she took me and a friend to Cats in Raleigh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then once when I was 13, she took me on a trip to New York and she took me to, to see a couple of Broadway shows. But, you know, which was great. It was wonderful. That's that's better than most uh, kids get. But, you know, it was like three three shows in my childhood. So, you know, I was not like, oh, constantly listening to cast albums. Like I didn't, you know, th- this was this was not this was really? not a thing. So Wait. I, I came kind of came up with it on my own. Do you remember what you saw? Yeah. Um, so besides Cats, when I was in New York, we saw Les Miserables. This was, of course, the uh, the, the 80s or, you know, yeah. the early 90s. So this is what you did. And we saw uh, Falsettos, which actually had a, had a revival a few a few years ago, the uh, the musical by William Finn, which was about, it was like a, you know, drama about, well, a comedic drama, uh, but it was about AIDS. So, you know, it can't be that funny. Falsetto. <laughs> uh-huh. oh, okay. Um, wow. So you, so how did you, what sparked this? interest. I mean, it really was quite accidental, I guess you could say. Um, I had spoken at a conference in December of 2015. And at the conference, I met a guy who was a fellow speaker. Uh, his name was Bruce. And Bruce was kind of in, in the Broadway ecosystem. And, you know, we kind of hit it off. And so, a few weeks later, he was like, hey, I have an extra ticket to see Fun Home. Do you want to come? And so, I mean, it was it was this kind of like ragtag group. It was like me and Bruce and his 10-year-old son. And we're like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> and so we we all went to see Fun Home together. And um, that's a great you know, show. Yeah, it was a great show. And, you know, of course, I was eager to do it. It had won the Tony and I had not managed to do it. I mean, honestly, like seeing a Broadway show, um, I mean, you know, now this is sort of old hat to me because I know how to do it. But it it honestly is like a little complicated, like like for for people who don't who grew up like not knowing anything about Broadway. It actually is legit complicated. Like, okay, do I, you know, I mean, it's not like a movie theater where you like I know. You walk do you go to TKTS? Buy... Do you go to the box office? Yeah, right. Do or, or do you, do you pay five hundred thousand dollars on like StubHub or something? Like you know, and and there's such a difference between you know, there's some shows where you actually can buy a ticket for that night, and then there's Hamilton, and you read about it, and it's like, oh, well, I guess I could book a reservation like seventeen months out. You know, so I just literally, so I had I hadn't even been to any Broadway shows living here because I'm like I don't know how to do it, <laughs> so I really needed so somebody to be like here's a ticket so uh so i went with bruce and it was you know this fabulous show this very powerful show and i i literally woke up the next morning and i'm like i need to write a broadway show and so ever since then i just have been pursuing it wow (laughs) that's an amazing story so have you i mean are there other things that you've woken up and said that and then also pursued that's so random dory what yeah, what it's very that? it's very random. It is. I, well, I mean, that's actually why I decided I needed to do it because you know, I feel like sometimes you just f- kind of get a message very strongly and you know, it's not that surprising if the message is like a normal message. You know, if if the message is just something like, well, duh, you know, it, it, I mean, if it's like, oh, you should eat more fiber or whatever, like, like, yeah, universe, you're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but it's like, we're, you know, I mean, this is what the Bible teaches us, right? Is like, is like, it's when you get the random ass messages, that's when you have to pay attention. You know, it's like, it's like, hey, guess what? You really need to like take 
take your people and lead them through the desert. Hey, you know what? You should actually kill your son. Like, <laughs> not that I'm advocating that, but like, right. it's when you get the random messages that don't make sense that you're like, whoa, I need to like really think about what's happening here. And so similarly, this was like a very random, you know, sense that yeah. I had because I had never been into musical theater. I really legit did not know anything about it. And so I was like, all right, I guess I need to pay attention to this and I guess I need to take it seriously. That's so cool. I grew up around musical theater and went to all, my parents are big into Broadway. So I went to all the shows and I've never had any inkling of wanting to write a show. But I will tell you quickly, just in the in the spirit of, um, you know, that that little message and just following it, and just because it's related to you, do you know why I started the, the singing lessons? Because I went to a jazz concert at this little club right next to Caroline's. There's like a club that you go down into. With uh, Iridium. Jeff, yes, yeah? with Jeff Madoff. And ah. we sat in the front. Jeff Madoff is actually how I know you. It's through Jeff Madoff's, uh, I think. And we were sitting right in the front and this and the big band and this woman was singing. And I was like, that looks like so much fun. And while I was sitting there on my phone, I Googled singing lessons in my neighborhood and emailed them. And it was very, I was like, you know what? That looks like fun. And I'm just going to take the step because it's actually not that hard to email someone and say, hey, can I take some singing? It just was, yes. you know, it, it's it's like a big leap, but also not a huge commitment. <laughs> Absolutely. That's fantastic. I love that. it was really fun. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm just, um, but I did not say I'm going to write a musical in 10 years. I said, I think I'll just take singing lessons for 45 minutes a week. Um, and it turned out to be a really fun thing to do. I um, endorse it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, okay. So back to how you've been in this long game, because now you're in the long game for your musical. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you've been in the long game building your brand online. And I mean, let me tell you, um, I know you haven't written for Forbes, for your Forbes column in a while. Right. right. I wrote for Forbes from for years. 2011 to 2015. Okay. Well, I... On more than one occasion, I've Googled a question and your Forbes article has come up as the first thing, including when I was getting ready for my TED talk. I was like, I don't know, I was, you know, I was just starting. What do I wear in a TED talk or what should I talk about or something? And you had like four articles that came up and your TED talk. I was like, of course, Dory's articles are coming up because she has just been she has written about everything related to what I'm doing. So your your content comes up so much. And. I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but this is what I was thinking when I was thinking the long game. It's like you wrote those articles so long ago, but they are still so relevant and they're still coming up and getting people to know about you and sending them to your website. And and it's a snowball effect. It's been my experience. And it's that first few years that doesn't nothing. Nothing happens in the first few years, but then, but then it's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, these are articles that you wrote five, six, seven years ago that I'm finding and would bring me to you if I didn't already know you. So did you have that foresight? Did you know, like content wasn't even a thing when you started writing content? That wasn't even a word in the vernacular, I don't think. <laughs> um, where did that come from? Have you just always been a writer or did you have that long game plan? It actually was a specific strategy that I was it following. Was. Okay. Um, yes. At first I was, I'm glad uh, to, to hear be... that. I feel like everyone <laughs> says like, Oh, I didn't know. And all of a sudden, no, I'm glad to hear that you knew what you Thank were doing. You. Well, yeah. to be, to be fair <laughs> in the earliest days, I was kind of like dragooned into it. But then at a certain point I realized that it could be something and I made a strategic choice. So 
early on, what I what I really wanted to do was write a book. And so in 2009, I was like, this is the year. And so I, but I did not know anything about how to write a book. And so I, what I did know is that you write a proposal and then you get an agent and then the agent sells the book. That is, that is theoretically how that works. Um, what I did not understand is that um, the days of just like writing a proposal and being able to sell it just kind of based on the idea are long gone uh, because what you what you really need to have in order to sell a book to a mainstream publisher is a so-called platform you need to be reasonably well known otherwise they're just like you know who are you get out of here right <laughs> so uh, so I wrote three three different book proposals in the first half of 2009 all of which were just you know after greater or period greater or lesser periods of consideration summarily dismissed by everyone like you seem nice, but you're not famous. So, uh, so anyway, I, I was essentially sent back to the drawing board. My agent dropped me, and I was just like, oh, "Okay, I have to. I guess I have to like build my platform." And I was very bitter that I had to do it because you know, when you want to write a book, you want to write a book. But I was like, "Fine." So I started deciding that I needed to to write things in order to to do this. So I began really aggressively pursuing places that I could write. So I ended up first uh, doing stuff for the Huffington Post, which was kind of a thing back then, and then for HBR, and then ultimately for Forbes. Uh, so I had developed the stable of places that I was writing for. And in fact, it did work, yay. Eventually one of my HBR pieces, you know, became the material for my first book. But a couple of years into this, probably around 2012, I realized that what what I needed to do was make a decision in order to level up my business because the a disadvantage that I had started with was that I had I had never and you know still all these years later you know I have not uh, I had not ever worked in a corporate job and so like a lot of people I mean I'd done stuff I had been a newspaper reporter and I'd worked on campaigns but that's a little different so a lot of people who become consultants part of how they're able to build their practice early on is like okay well if you spent 20 years at McKinsey you know a lot of people you know a lot of executives who can hire you I did not I did not know people who, you know, who could hire me, or at least I knew people who could hire me for things like, hey, will you write a speech for $500? <laughs> but, you know, you have to do a lot of that in order to make a living. And so I decided that I needed to meet new people and I needed to essentially level up who I was known by. And so that entailed making a strategic decision to drop uh, a certain percentage of the work that I was doing, which did, in fact, decrease my income by quite a bit, and reallocate that time toward platform building, brand building. And uh, so during this period w where it was most intense from about 2012 to 2015, I was, for different publications, I was writing a minimum of 10 blogs a month, sometimes up to 15. Uh, so I, it was really like a, a, a large percentage of my time uh, just trying to kind of build build the snowball, as it were. Can I ask logistically for a second? Because that sounds like you were writing 50 articles a month. 15, one five. 15. Oh, I thought, but you for multiple platforms or oh, in yeah. total. So, so for, for, for multiple, for, you know, for, in, in total, but it was, it was sort total. of spread out gotcha. across things. So for oh, okay. Forbes, I signed a contract with them that I would do a minimum of five per month. 
but you know for for many of those months i would do like 10 for them i'd do one or two for harvard business review i'd do one or two for huffington post occasionally i'd do things for just like other random things i was writing for you know stuff i don't really write for now but there was a site a business site called bnet i wrote for them for a while i I wrote for amex open forum you know like all the things right okay gotcha so quantity is definitely part of the strategy but of course you also want quality and were you logistically were you writing from beginning to end did you have an editor did you have like any help or what were you doing this completely on your own plus of course doing I would assume consulting to actually make a living and support yourself. Yeah, there was that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I I was I was doing it all on my own. You know, I mean, some people might say that I had uh, an unfair advantage in that I had previously been been a journalist. I had I mean, not for long, honestly, I'd been a journalist for a year and then Mm -hmm. I got laid off. But I did I did have that training. But I think in some ways it's it's honestly like less about journalism training and more about just understanding the fundamental truth that you learn as a journalist is you cannot afford to dilly-dally. You just cannot. And it needs to be, you know, yes, it needs to be accurate, but it's just about being good enough. It's like, okay, is it accurate? Is it good enough? Great. Let's get it out there. I think that, you know, for for the vast majority, I mean, I'm going to say like 95% of people who are college educated professionals, you can write an article, you know, probably just as well as I can, you know, but I think the problem is that a lot of people have a mental block about, oh, well, articles take like eight hours to write. No, they fucking don't. Like you can write an article in like an hour. You really can. You just need to believe that you can. And yeah. and there's, you know, you systematize it after a while, um, but you, you can learn to be really quite efficient at it. Well, and that takes practice and letting go of perfectionism would you wouldn't you say I mean I think part of what I watch people that I coach struggle with is they just it's never good enough and I think that that's just kind of standing in their way of pressing publish because they think that there's some holy grail that this article is going to be and they're very precious about it as opposed to you know if you want like when I tell people when they say well I just will need an article to go viral it's like you get viral by creating lots of stuff you can't really anticipate what's going to go viral you can have some ideas but you really just have to create lots of things and I feel like you've done that and have had lots of hits because you've just created so much content uh, yeah thank you I mean I, I agree with you for sure like obviously if we could predict what would go viral like why would we do anything else <laughs> right <laughs> um, so it, I am a firm believer that it is hundred percent about focusing on the number of at bats yeah cool okay so you had this strategic idea to create build your brand by going to lots of platforms and that did snowball on itself would you say that you you said that one of the articles was ended up being the basis of your book. Would you say that doing all of these articles also kind of prepared you to write that book? I mean, aren't my experience was just writing lots of stuff made it easier to write the book after. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for sure. I think that writing I mean, you know, writing writing a book is both similar and dissimilar to writing articles. The biggest thing is uh, in terms of 
what I feel the difference to be is writing an article, you know, you, you really can sort of bang it out in one discrete session and like, okay, yay, it's done. There we go. Writing a book is a little bit harder because you, you really have to sustain this narrative flow and like, okay, this thing that I wrote today, does it fit with you know, what came before that I wrote yesterday and how do I lay it up so that it makes sense with the thing that I'm going to write tomorrow. And it's it's just a little harder to keep the totality of it in your mind uh, at once so that, so that a reader is actually perceiving it as this bigger concept that, that makes sense. But, you know, that's not, that's not in any way insurmountable. Uh, so yeah, sure. I was very fortunate that one of my early articles for Harvard Business Review was able, I wouldn't say it went viral, but it did catch the eye of the scene, you know, the the lead editor, the editor in chief of the Harvard Business Review. And she saw that. And the, I mean, these things are luck too. There was a situation a couple of months later where what I think happened was that somebody somebody had promised them an article and was late on it or there was a problem with it or something like that. So they had a very sudden news hole that they needed to fill like really fast. And so the editor-in-chief went to um, the editor that I had been working with and was like, hey, what about that article about reinvention? Can you talk to her? Can you get her to do a longer piece about it? And so actually it was it was like immensely satisfying because at the time HBR they don't really anymore but at the time they had like a sort of regular stable of contributors and so this editor had been kind of impressed with some of my early stuff and had said to me like oh hey maybe we can make you one of the regular contributors and i was like really pumped about that but then you know the problem was HBR has a very specific style. It's like a house style, which I've now spent a lot of time learning and analyzing and understanding. But early on, I didn't. It was a little bit more hit or miss. And so, you know, I submitted some other stuff and he didn't like it. And so then he was just like, uh, well, maybe not. And I was so disappointed. And I was just feeling like, oh, okay, I guess that didn't work out. And then all of a sudden his boss comes to him and is like, go get that girl. And so he had to like come kind of like crawling back to me and be like, oh, hey, will you write an article for us? That's uh, satisfying. It was very satisfying, (laughs) yes. Well, actually, can I ask you a little more about how, because I know that my listeners, like they all, everybody asks me, how did you get your Forbes column? And can you introduce me? You know, I'm like, well, can I see your blog? And they say, I don't have one. I'm like, well, that's step one. (laughs) Um, But that was step one for me. I'm curious what your step one was. Like you said, oh, I realized that I needed a platform. So I went and started writing for all these publications. And I think everyone's listening going, yeah, if I could write for publications, I would do that. But I don't know how to. What's your recommendation? Or how did you do that? That first part. Yeah, well, you are exactly right, of course, Pia, that the most important thing if somebody... Uh, like an editor is going to take a chance on you is uh, they cannot just trust (laughs) that you will write well. They want to see that you can write well. So you do need to have um, samples, writing samples. The, the, the old, the old, uh, old school OG term for it is clips. (laughs) (laughs) Because you used to clip them from the newspaper. (laughs) 
But these days, your clips, um, I I had a blog on my website, you know, back, you know, now you like did. 2010, I yeah. did. Nowadays, what I think is probably an easier option for people is just like write some articles on LinkedIn, write some articles on Medium. Those are, you know, or Thrive Global. Those are sites that are accessible to anybody. And it gives you an opportunity to say like, hey, here's what I can do. Here's some samples. And so when you have that, it gives you something to show people. And then it really becomes a question of networking your way up to higher profile publications. I, 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 I have thought so deeply about this. I even, I even have an online course I run about this called Writing for High Profile Publications. So there's lots to say. But you can approach people cold. Um, in fact, I got my Forbes column uh, pitching cold. But, you know, the caveat is that in order to do that, I mean, number one, you need the clips to show people. And you need to really have what I what I call a social proof laden bio to be able to give to the people because you know they they want to know that you're credible like nobody wants to take a chance on somebody that can be a wacko and so you, social proof is like what are the markers of credibility that you can demonstrate so that without a shadow of a doubt within a paragraph you can convince someone wow this person is an expert they know exactly what they're talking about i mean what you want is to be able to say okay well you know i i'm a you know a, a whatever whatever my clients include boom 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 things they've heard of my work has previously been featured in boom 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 publications that they know of i've guest lectured at boom 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 and it's like top universities like you know or or whatever your version of that is maybe it's awards you've won maybe it's professional associations you're involved in you know what whatever um but it's it's thinking about you know how do you sort of amass that obviously the ideal situation which makes it easier rather than going in cold is if you have a friend that can introduce you to the editor so you know that requires some finessing with the huffington post it was such a fakakta process that I literally had to reach out to six different colleagues who wrote for Huffington Post to ask them because it wasn't that they didn't want to, it was that they literally didn't even understand how to, like the system was so convoluted, they didn't understand who to who to introduce me to. But finally somebody did and I was able to get in. But you you really have to pursue it a lot. Like I, I hear from a lot of people, they're like, oh, I tried a thing and it didn't work. It's like, okay, you need to find like 20 ways to try the thing because it would be really, really the exception for the first one to work. That is so important. And I think I should make that a clip and re and replay it on my own social media for everybody over and over and over again. So many people, I think, like, why do people not know that, right? Like I, I find so many people think, well, I tried it once, it didn't work like hands up I, I guess I have to try something else as opposed because they don't necessarily there's like the famous story of JK Rowling you know yeah. getting rejected by I think 29 <laughs> something like that yeah. something like that and then she and then she writes Harry Potter it's like that's not the exception that's that's how it works there's just a lot going on there's a lot of other people who are very impressive and possibly more impressive so you have to do a lot of things in order to be seen and there's the stars have to align um, I had a similar thing I knew at least five people who worked for Forbes and the reason I got it was because my friend introduced me and it was because I had been writing and she had been reading my newsletter for years. So when he asked her, uh, hey, do you know anyone who could write about small business branding? She was like, oh, my friend. 
Like my good friend could write about that. So yes. it was it was serend it was it seems serendipitous. It seems like who you know, but actually she wouldn't have recommended me if she hadn't been getting my newsletter and my and my blog for two years. So Amen. That's yep. a long game. That's a long game. <laughs> yes, it is. That's right. Um that is that's great advice. And you know, I think as as you're listening to Dory saying you know, talk about all of your accolades, talk about the places that you've spoken, all of this. Some people might say, well, I haven't done those things. Okay, well, then you need to see that this is a long game. You need to see that you need to do things that can build your resume. Uh, I forget which book you mentioned in it. Maybe it's um, Entrepreneurial You. I, th- I think you were talking about, you know, making money from your expertise is different than becoming really good at what you do. And and sometimes I'm adding this on, like the money comes a little bit later sometimes when you do the, the the work in the beginning to become really noteworthy, right? Like you don't, you can't make up noteworthiness. You have to just do it. But uh, I believe that anybody who puts their consistent energy into it can be noteworthy. It's just about consistency. And that's why I'm so excited to read your book because it's like, it's like a message everybody needs to, to hear. And I feel like we're being fed marketing messages I feel like marketing is kind of souring our brains to think that there's a quick fix because good marketing is fast, easy, like all the things you want without the stuff you don't, right? Isn't that like the the, <laughs> the recipe for marketing? Hey, here's all your stuff you want and you don't have to do all these things you don't want to do. And I think that we're getting bombarded by that message and that's what's convincing us that we don't yeah. have to play the long game. Yeah, I think I think that's so spot on, Pia. And I agree. I think there, you know, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of people who, yes, you're exactly right. Say, oh, but I don't have a blah, blah, blah. I haven't done a blah, blah, blah. I guess it's not for me. And I just I just want to, like, shake people by the collar and say, like, oh, is that an immutable state of affairs? Like, (laughs) like, absolutely not. Like the the whole the whole point is if there is a if there is some uh, arm of credibility that you don't possess, go get it because you can go get it. You can get everything. There is, there is nothing that drives me bonkers more than people who, you know, have this sort of passive fixed mentality about, well, I didn't go to an Ivy league school. Therefore, the first thing you learn living in Boston, I lived in Boston for 17 years. No one gives a fuck. If you went to Harvard, literally no one, because everyone went to Harvard. No one cares. It is the least important notable thing. It does not matter. What, what matters is that we are strategic in how we think about deploying and obtaining the credibility that we need so that in a busy world at a glance people can see that we know what we're talking about because it would be nice if everyone took the time to like independently assess and evaluate uh you know oh what are you know really do you know what you're talking about but like they're never going to do it with a stranger because people are just too busy and so uh, you know just as one example I now have been teaching for uh, for Duke, for the Fuqua School of Business, for about eight years. And that is something that has become, in, you know, in some ways kind of a pillar of my credibility. That was, that was certainly not like some kind of foregone conclusion. I don't have an MBA. I don't have a PhD. Literally in college, I never took a business class. My university didn't offer them. It was a liberal arts school. So... Um, what so, do you teach? Yeah. I teach um, leadership communications at uh, at Duke. And the way that I got that was actually a, a very, very concerted strategy where I spent close to a year 
uh, pers- actively pursuing academic affiliations because I knew that that was going to be the next critical trigger in terms of building my credibility. And so I did everything from talking to uh, to friends and getting recommendations, you know, getting connections and referrals to also, you know, with greater or lesser success, you know, basically cold calling people and, you know, cold emailing them and, you know, volunteering to speak, connecting with them, whatever. I literally did this for dozens of universities, reaching out and, you know, cold and looking up who the department chair was and sending them an offer and like, oh, hey, do you need a guest speaker? I can come guest speak and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And reaching out to their executive ed departments and offering to do stuff. My first in uh, was, you know, you always go for the low hanging fruit, was with my own college, uh, which had an executive ed arm. And they were, I think, mostly willing to listen to me because I was an alumna. And so, you know, I think they just felt like it would be impolite not to at least talk to me. (laughs) They owe you that much. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, so I was able to kind of talk my way in there. And then like once you get the first toehold, it becomes a lot easier to pitch yourself to other places. But yeah, the the Duke connection came from a colleague that I had worked on a political campaign with over a decade before. And she had gone on to get her MBA at Duke. And she connected me first with the admissions director who she knew, which was like obviously not the right person. But that person was like nice and connected me with the right person. And so, you know, I managed to have a conversation with them. And it turned out that they were, yay, they were looking, they were basically looking for exactly what I was teaching uh, or what I was able to teach at the time that I was offering it. So that was very lucky. But what made it you know, what made it possible, what made the luck possible was that I had probably contacted 50 other schools over the past year. And, you know, they had like mostly dissed me. So one one thing broke, which was lucky, but uh, there there was a lot under the surface. Um, but I pursued that very aggressively because I knew that what I needed was an academic affiliation to kind of hang my hat on to establish that credibility. Wow. I am so thankful that you just broke that down because listening to all of the ways that you pursued this very clear, very clear goal with all of these different strategies, knowing that they weren't all going to work, most of them weren't going to work. Anybody listening to that should see like, well, of course, Dory Clark is Dory Clark. Like, listen to what she's doing (laughs) to get all of these accolades. I mean, that's that's what's important for people to hear. I think that that's the story that a lot of people don't hear. And then we fill in the gaps of how these things happened. I actually like kind of just assumed you had an MBA, actually. Yep, not at all. <laughs> I have a, a theology degree. I have a theology degree. So that's even better. Like, oh, I just you're such a great shining example of how doing the work and taking the action consistently over a period of time will get you the things that you want. And I think most people just stop way too early or they don't even know that that's possible or to your point they just think oh that's not for me and so I'm not even going to try but clearly anything that you decide this is what I'm going to do let me put a plan in place and let me also highlight you are the queen of networking like that is not that is like a huge part of it you said you have a course on on just the networking piece of it or they're all kind of networking yeah yeah I the the only networking course that I've done but but I think it's good is uh, through LinkedIn Learning. So I have uh-huh. uh, I've done actually over the past five years I've done about twenty five courses for for LinkedIn Learning, and one is called Professional oh Networking. Oh my goodness! Uh, 
Okay, but I would say that you are on the top of your game when it comes to networking. And you've networked your way into relationships with a very impressive list of people that you highlighted in, I think it was Entrepreneurial You. Was it Entrepreneurial You? Yeah, I mean, in, in all yeah. of my books, in I try to books. feature yeah. interesting Well, folks. I just remember as I went through that book, I was like, wow, she knows a lot of very famous people. <laughs> how did you, how did that happen? I mean, you being a famous person yourself, I guess. But like, was that an intentional uh, thing you did strategically? Like have a list of people that you knew were important to meet or are you just, just kind of a natural networker? Well, it's it's certainly true that, that um, when whenever there was somebody that I thought was interesting or cool that I wanted to meet, I would begin to say, well, gosh, how can I meet them? <laughs> and so <laughs> one of the answers, you know, which you you've maybe discovered yourself is writing about them. So that was actually an, an early entree that made a lot of things possible was my Forbes column. And so part uh, I, I, I focus a lot, you know, in my recognized expert course that I run. Um, one of the pillars of it is that I talk about the, th the three elements of becoming a recognized expert. And it's content creation, so people know what your ideas are, social proof, so that people take you seriously, and your network, because you need people to help amplify your message and, and things like that. And writing for Forbes, at least the way that I used it, I was willing to allocate a lot of time to it during those three years that I was really doing it intensively because it actually killed three birds, all of those, with one stone because there was credibility in writing for a publication people had heard of. You were creating content, of course, and if you interviewed people, you were building your network. So, I mean, literally, um, I was just thinking about this last night because I've been emailing friends, asking them for for like introductions to people because I'm planning out of my book launch, of course. And so there's news outlets I'd like to be featured in, or there's podcasts I'd like to, uh, to be on in addition to yours. And so I had been communicating with some uh, some friends. So I was emailing with a guy named Nir Eyal, who uh, wrote a, a couple of great books, Hooked and Indistractable. I was emailing with Martin Lindstrom, who's become a good friend. His most recent book is The Ministry of Common Sense. And I was asking them, and they, you know, they're both so nice. I was saying, hey, would you mind introducing me to so-and-so? And they both wrote back and you know, they're like, yeah, of course. But I thought back to how I got to know both of them. And literally in both cases, it was whatever, eight, seven, eight years ago, I interviewed them about their previous books. And we just hit it off in the interview process and then became friends. So that's often a, a really good entry point for people is through writing or podcasting or something like that. I've heard that many times and I haven't really taken advantage of that. I've written hundreds of articles on Forbes and I'm like, just out of my own brain. <laughs> it's easier. Well, I'm going to have to write an article about your book, Dory. So I'll, Amazing. Uh, Thank you. I'll totally do that. I, I also feel like there's so many Forbes writers nowadays that like, I'm not going to be the only one writing about your book, but that's okay. I'll write the best article about your book. Oh my God. I love it. Um, I know it. Yes. That's my challenge for the next couple of months. Cool. Well, I am just beyond grateful that you came on the show and thank you so much for like opening up to us about all the kind of backstory. I think the backstory is just so important for people to see. I think they don't see it enough with the shiny marketing 
but to hear what you've done in order to get where you are, which is so impressive. And it's, and that's, again, like what I really admire about you is just that you have this hunger and pursuit and laser focus. And that's what I, you know, always try to have. I definitely try to inspire people to have. Um, but it's been such a pleasure listening to that. And I'm super excited to read your book. Can you tell us it's out on uh, the 21st? It is. September yes. 21st. You can pre-order it. I assume I saw on your website, you can already pre-order it. Tell us one, one exciting thing, one other exciting thing we have to look forward to in your book. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, in, in the long game, for me, there's a lot of things that are exciting, but one that might be exciting to your listeners in the spirit of aspirin, not vitamin, we all need we all need aspirin, is in the first, probably third of the book, one of the things that I really go into granular detail about is how to clear white space in your mind and in your schedule. Because the, the truth is, one of the biggest impediments to being able to play the long game and accomplish your own goals is the problem that for so many of us, literally, there is just not time to do it because we are so stuffed with other people's priorities and obligations. And so, you know, some sometimes that's, you know, a mindset thing. Yes. But but also in many cases, it's literally tactical. It's like, well, I don't know what to say without offending them or I, you know, I don't know how to extricate myself from it. And so I really try to provide a lot of information for people about how to how to say no, even to good things. But, you know, things if they if they are not on the path that you want to be moving toward, how to be strategic about evaluating that and, and getting out of it. You know, I have I have scripts, you know, sort of possible alternative gambits that you can suggest, because I think one of the, the things that that really opens us up to the possibility of being able to uh, to be true strategic thinkers is just getting getting rid of the dross that fills so much of our our lives so that we can uh, have the space to concentrate on what we consider meaningful. Wow. Yes, I, I actually would not have necessarily anticipated that being a part of it. And I'm, I can see why. And I'm really excited to read that. So everybody needs to go out and get the long game. And we'll, maybe we'll discuss it on uh, this podcast on a later date. Thank you so, so much, Dory. Uh, so good catching up with you. And uh, good luck with your launch. I know it's going to be incredible. Pia, thank you so much. To grab Dory's Entrepreneurial You Self-Assessment Workbook, go to doryclark.com backslash entrepreneur. And if you go to just doryclark.com and you click on the courses tab at the top, you'll see that course that she mentioned in our conversation, the Writing for High Profile Publications course, among many others. And of course, you can go pre-order or if you're listening to this next week, order her book, The Long Game, which will be out on Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. I will link to all of these in the show notes at piasilva.com backslash podcast. If you haven't done so, hit that subscribe button so you never miss another podcast episode. And if you love this episode, please share it with someone you know could benefit. Please share it on your Instagram stories and you can tag me at Pia Loves Your Biz, B-I-Z, Pia Loves Your Biz, and I will repost it. The only way this podcast grows is word of mouth. So if you've ever gotten a piece of value from an episode, I would greatly appreciate it if you would share it with your community. Taking inspiration from Dory today, I want you to ask yourself, what kind of expectations do you have for the actions that you take? Do you reach out to somebody once and then when they don't respond, you say, oh, I guess that's a no and move on? 
Are you interested in doing things like writing for high profile publications to raise your profile, but you only have like three articles on your blog from 2015? I think Dory demonstrated just how important it is to have clarity around your goals and then to go after them with tenacity and consistency until you achieve them. So ask yourself, what do you really want? And are you willing to do and take action? And how many times are you willing to hit a wall in the process in order to achieve it? Changing your expectations and playing the long game is how you guarantee success. And I don't say that lightly. You can absolutely guarantee success if you follow the model that Dory laid out. She wanted to be an adjunct professor. So she contacted everyone she possibly could and had 50 conversations with 50 different academic institutions before she got her in, before the stars magically aligned and they needed exactly what she was offering. You could call that luck or you could call that making sure she guaranteed her own success. Change your expectations, play the long game, and today that might just be your next step to showing your business who's boss. Show Your Business Who's Boss is produced by Yellow House Media. Production coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Creative direction by Steve Wasterball. Our theme music is Glass Prisms by Western Runners. 